0: Stretch pass for Jokinen as he cuts in. Jokinen scores! Back to back goals for the Kings! And they take a three. You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Kings. One nothing Kings. They look for four straights.
1: Kopitar slides it across. I follow right on. Kopitar bags home the rebound.
0: Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings
1: fans. My name is Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings, man. The Kings are on the road and have a bit of a win streak going, so I thought I'd bring you a little weekend episode of the podcast. Rick Stevens from allhabs.net will tell us exactly what we can expect from Torrey Mitchell if and when he's ever in the lineup. Then Kent Wilson from The Athletic is here to walk me through some of my fancy stat concerns. Never miss an episode by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify Premium, Google Play, or any other place you can find podcasts. Subscription links and recent episodes can be found at lakings.com slash podcast. And as Todd McClellan might say,
0: analytics that.
1: Joining me now from allhabs.net, that is at allhabs on Twitter. Uh, Rick, how are you doing, Rick?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back.
1: My pleasure. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, the Kings complete a trade with Montreal Canadiens for Tory Mitchell. Now, he's been in the league for quite a while now, but Kings fans may not be intimately familiar with him. He's played uh, a bulk of his career in Montreal, so I'm curious what we should know about Tori Mitchell.
0: Well, Torrey uh, Mitchell has played the last few years in, in Montreal. He is, uh, he's a veteran, 32 years old, um, veteran of 617 NHL games. Um, he's, uh, he grew up in Greenfield Park, which is um, on the south shore of Montreal. Um, so it was kind of his always his childhood dream to play for the Canadians. And, and he got that wish when um, Mark Bergevin made the trade. Uh, to bring him from the Buffalo Sabres. And, um, you know, Troy Mitchell is, um, uh, he works hard. Um, he's still at, at his age, has great speed. He's one of the best faceoff guys, certainly was on the Canadians, um, defensively responsible. He'll play the penalty kill for you. Um, but Mark Bergevin brought him to, um, at the trade deadline in 2015, uh, brought him to Montreal to kind of bring consistency to the fourth line. And, and um, that's, that's what he's done. Um, and, you know, the, the year after he was, he was brought, he had a career high of, uh, of 11 goals. Um, he was a, um, a Michelle Terrian uh, type of player. Uh, Terry loved him. Um, and for all of the defensive assignments, it was either Thomas Pekanitz, uh, or Tory Mitchell that was deployed uh, under under the, the Terrian regime. Um, but all that changed last Valentine's day. And that was when um, Michelle Terrian was fired by Mark Bergevin and um, just having recently been fired by the Boston Bruins, Claude Julien, he was brought in uh, quickly to replace Terrian. And um, it was clear that 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 Mitchell wasn't a, a Julian guy um, for his defensive assignments. It was Plakanit still again, but it was Philip Deneau rather than than Mitchell. And under uh, Julian, Mitchell's ice time dropped. Um, I guess I can say that 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 Julian's system relies on on a, on a heavy game, um, particularly from his fourth line. So at, last year at the deadline, you saw. Mark Bergevan go out and, uh, tap the Kings for Dwight King. Um, he went and got Steve Vaught. He got Andreas Martin Martinson, and that was Julian's, um, fourth line. So, um, there was less of a place for, for a Tory Mitchell, uh, type of player. Um, this season, um, Mitchell played in about half the games. He was a healthy scratch for the rest. um, his ice time was below 10 minutes. Um, even at that, his, his face off percentage is over 60%. Um, so, you know, you can expect all those things that consistent, consistent work ethic. Um, he's a great team guy. He's good with young players. Um, Mitchell spent last summer with, uh, um, Mike McCarran. Uh, twenty two year old prospect uh, for the Canadians. Um McCarran under the, the kind of mentorship of, of Mitchell kind of changed his his diet, changed his workout routine. Uh he got faster on the ice and he became a reliable face off guy, a reliable center. Um and McCarron's been um uh, about fifty five percent this this season in the face off dot so I think I think you're gonna see Uh, Mitchell um, deployed in defensive situations. I think you're going to see a consistent effort when when he's out there. I think the speed's going to fit in well with the Kings, and he's going to be a good guy in the locker room.
1: So if I'm a Kings fan, am I thrilled that the Kings acquire a, a competent bottom six player without giving up a roster spot, or am I concerned that the Kings were able to acquire a bottom six player without sacrificing a roster player?
0: Well i I think I think it was um I, I think the Kings Kings fans should be happy. Um there wasn't wasn't much given up the conditional fifth round pick um is not a lot. Um and for the, the, the Canadians it was just simply uh giving up um his and and making more salary room, uh one point two million dollars. Um and you know, what's rumored is that that uh, Bergevin is trying to create space to bring in the, the number one center that's sorely needed, um, and on a what could be a non-playoff team, uh, which the Canadians are leaning that way, um, it was it was just uh, and and a, a player that the coach isn't using. It was just an opportunity to, um, you know. Um, uh, addition by deletion kind of thing, and and free up some cap space. So I I, th- I think that uh, the Kings got very good value.
1: Excellent. Well, that is what I like to hear. Um, obviously, anytime your team acquires a guy, you know that that looks like you're sort of picking up some other team's. Um, I don't want to say garbage, but you know, if if it looks like you're acquiring something that another team doesn't want for nothing, it it always raises the hairs on the back of my neck. But it sounds like this should be a really good fit for Mitchell in L.A.
0: I think so. Um, I talked to uh, Mike McCarran and uh, and asked him about Tory Mitchell, given that the two had spent so much time together. And Mike kind of treaded carefully on the subject, but said, um, "You know, when you're not winning, when the Canadians not winning, something has to change." And this this might just have been that kind of a a move. Uh, and McCarran also said that, um, you know, uh, Mitchell taught him a lot. Um, he was very grateful. Um, he 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 said that um, Mitchell everybody loves him in the locker room. He's a great locker room guy. Um, and he said he's personally he's going to miss him. So, um, you know, I, I think he was pretty well respected um, amongst his, his teammates.
1: It's good news all around. I want to thank you for joining me, Rick.
0: Always glad to be with you.
1: Again, that's all Habs on Twitter, at AllHabs, or AllHabs.net online for uh, all your Montreal Canadiens news. Hopefully we'll talk to you soon before the next trade happens.
0: I look forward to it.
1: Joining me today from the Athletic Calgary, Kent Wilson. How are you doing today, Kent? Good, how are you? I'm good. I didn't mean to throw in the word Calgary at the end there to be dismissive in any way. Uh, <laughs> Great, <yeah. laughs> um, Kent, you are my uh, fancy stat guru. You were the guy who sort of talked me through some of the the uh, more advanced concepts when I first started dipping my toe into this pool. And so I wanted to talk to you. I, I always like having you on um, because specifically when it comes to the Pacific Division, there are some things that I don't quite understand this year. I don't think anybody does necessarily. Yeah. Um so let's let's start with the Kings though. Um they hopped out to a huge uh start. You know, Mike Milbury made his comments, it got Kings fans rattled about, you know, them not having played anybody. Now the season has gone on and we're what 25 games into it. Um yeah. things have stabilized, parody has taken hold. Where do you see the Kings as a team? You know, are they accurately placed in the standings right now, or do you see them dropping even lower?
2: You know, I haven't really looked too closely at the Kings this year. Mm-hmm. Um, the funny thing is it's you, you haven't had to in the past up until recently just because they were always one of the best teams in the league in mm-hmm. terms of fancy stats. They, yeah. But, um, yeah, I haven't had to think too much about them. I mean they're I don't think they're as dominant as they have been previously in terms of controlling the puck, but it sounds like they've they've meaningfully changed the system so it's less about lots of shots from everywhere and more about good shots from <laughs> scoring areas. So Well, so that's um, so I
1: guess that's my question for you. Is as yeah. my understanding as you explained it to me was that as parity and uh, and talent disbursement Uh, affect the league that randomness plays a larger role and and more randomness plays a role sorry i'm just rehashing this for people who may not have um you know been so dedicated to the topic but but as randomness plays a larger role then then really what you want to do is you want to bundle your positive chances as much as possible because over time you'll just win more right because you have, you have less and less immediate control on the outcome of a game. And yeah. so it just becomes a math equation. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and so in the past, the Kings have been top five, as you said, or maybe even top three, sometimes, you know, the top team in, in, in generating these, you know, these fancy stats. Um, yeah. now we're looking at them and they, they're, you know, 12th, uh, they were, they were a little bit lower earlier in the season. um, so my question to you is, how much of a role do you think talent actually plays? Because that's the real... It seems to me that's the real part of the equation that gets left left out in a lot of these conversations is, if you have a team loaded with, you know, uh, really dangerous, talented players, then you can actually afford to lose these possession battles by a wide margin if your ability to score is greater than your opponent on a, on a night-to-night basis, Correct.
2: Uh, theoretically, yeah, um one of the issues with the NHL is it's really really hard to do that sure. um, in a cap environment with 31 teams. So if if you know you and I were fantasy GMs and we had all the money in the world and there was no cap and we could get Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby and you know every elite shooter, almost every elite shooter like they used to do, you know, the Edmonton Oilers back <laughs> in the dynasty right. days when they had so many Hall of Famers playing together all at one time. You could really drive things like shooting percentage um, way above most of your opponents to the degree that uh, it would probably overwhelm volume. It's really hard to do that these days um, just because, let's say you're the Edmonton Oilers and you have Connor McDavid, and, you know, that's all you really have. You have Dreisaitl maybe on the ice sometimes, but that's only, you know, McDavid can only play a third of the game. Um, so right now you can see, even if you look at the shooting percentages in the league, uh, it's not totally tight right now. I think the lowest is around 6% and the highest is probably around 105 And you're going to see that band wither as the, as the season goes along. So the worst team will probably settle in around 7 The best team might settle in around 9 And then that may not repeat next year. So we've seen, you know, teams like the Washington Capitals come out and have a 10.5 shooting percentage season, and then for that to fall away next year just because um, a lot of it's randomness.
1: But doesn't, I mean, but then that speaks to the notion that once you make the playoffs, anything can happen. Um, You know, obviously in the past, I've heard that, um, that dominating that possession metric. Uh, Which is Corsi for those following along um, is is the best indicator for future success. Meaning, the only you know the reason it really matters that everybody pays attention is that the Stanley Cup winner invariably would be one of those teams that through the regular season had dominated puck possession. Um, What if and and look, obviously, I'm wearing a Kings hat, so Mm -hmm. what I'm what I'm about to say will be heavily biased. But what about the notion that a team like the Kings, who knows that it doesn't matter what seed you are, it knows that it matters, you know, how well you're playing um, in the playoffs. If a team that gets back a healthy Jeff Carter and suddenly has Anze Kopitar, a bizarrely resurrected Dustin Brown, Jeff <laughs> Carter, Tyler Toffoli, Marion Gabrick, if you find out, oh my gosh, Adrian Kempe is actually pretty good, Tanner Pearson can have his, you know, his 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 highlight days, um, you know, and then that doesn't even take into account other guys who may, you know, we don't know what Alex Ayafalo can be. Um, Isn't it possible, then, that a team like that with with a hot goalie, which we know Jonathan Quick can be, um, is there any reason to believe that a team like that that does come from the middle of the pack in possession couldn't contend for a cup? And I realize I'm getting way ahead of myself, but look, it's December. There's not a ton to talk about.
2: (laughs) Yeah, of course. So the... Influence of randomness in the league and the high influence of randomness makes it more likely that a team from the middle of the pack could win the cup. Uh, years ago, on a, a sadly defunct blog called Objective NHL, it was um, calculated that the best team, objectively the best team in the NHL, probably only wins the cup one out of five times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just because it's, I mean, it's a really hard, uh, it's a really hard championship to win, just, it, you know. Four rounds, lots of injuries, lots of penalties, yeah. lots of randomness.
1: I'm going to jump in and interrupt you real quick because I, that brings us to a topic that I do want to discuss. Uh, probably much more in depth at a later date, but we'll touch on it now before we get into Vegas. And that's the notion of objectivity because I'm am watching all of these fights on Twitter about the the new fit the new uh, stat du jour, mm. uh, expected goals, mm-hmm. and and I I. Briefly, sort of dipped my toe into one fight, and I didn't like. You know, it was, didn't quite. I didn't enjoy it, so I backed out. But, but, the, but the notion that somehow um, one can quantify uh, quality of shot—it seems to me that if Alex Ovechkin receives a pass from the top of the left faceoff circle, no matter what the scenario is, no matter how many defenders are on him, even strength, power play, whatever it may be—it seems to me that that is a much higher quality of shot than Mm. if than if kyle clifford god bless him receives the same pass in the same place on the ice now are you going to tell me that when these calculations are being you know taken and the algorithms are being put together that that there's that level of scrutiny involved in the math that we're that we're taking into account specific players shooting percentages from specific spots on the ice and if not then then why are we using the word objective
2: well, that's that's the issue once you start getting into advanced modeling of things, and it's one of the reasons that it's hard for shock quality to to really get a, a hold in the community beyond sort of these. So expected goals is a very initial for, foray into advanced modeling of shock quality, mm-hmm. um, and it isn't even as predictive of future gold di- differential as Corsi is yet. So that's one of the reasons you still see possession in Corsi sort of tossed around much more. Um, but yeah, they try to, uh, as far as I know right now, they try to factor in stuff that they can find in the data, which is, you know, what kind of shot it was, where it was taken on the ice, you know, if there was a pass before it, and and, to that, I mean, it's even hard to get that data right, because they're basing it on what the NHL comes up with, and a lot of that data is, not completely accurate all the time, even when it comes down to something like location, so they're doing the best they can but you're right it would be ideally for a model like that you'd have factors like where the puck was was on the ice if there was a pass if it was a rebound but also the shooter talent portion of it included as well so i don't think we're there yet just because i don't think we have the right kind of data um but hopefully down the road we will be able to build models like that that are actually accurate
1: so, let me make a terrible analogy and I don't mean to disparage your <laughs> what appears to be one of your passions. Mm. Um, when I was uh, in my early 20s, a friend of mine and I'm sure he's not the first one to come up with this idea, but it seemed like it to us at the time. My friend came up with this idea for a band, which would right. be you'd place a bunch of cardboard cutouts on stage and then you'd put a tape uh, well, this is back in the day of, <laughs> of tape recorders, <laughs> but then you'd put a you know, put a boombox behind each cardboard cutout and just have the boombox play a recording of the band and right. you know he, he thought it was a very clever idea and, and we were sufficiently altered that we thought it was an equally amazing idea and it occurred to me in that moment that at this point you don't even have to prove that your idea is good or worthy you just have to be the first one to present it and be passionate about it and that's what i'm it feels to me and again i don't mean to disparage the entire fancy stack community but it seems to me that every day i wake up and there's a new column in you know the natural stat trick um uh menu Mm -hmm. that i that i keep coming back to the question of what are we even talking about anyway because the possession one to me as much as the words may sound confusing to people and as much as it may sound annoying that one Mm -hmm. to me is really simple because it just comes down to mislabeled shots on goal and everybody can understand that if you outshoot your opponent more often than not you'll win the game right like when you outshoot your opponent and lose, it's frustrating because you look at the shot total and you go, Oh man, we outshot them. We should have won. Well Corsi yeah. just of course he just gives an, just changes the definition of shot on goal to a more, in my mind, a more reasonable definition. And so it makes sense. And then the PDO is just shooting percentage and save percentage, two stats we all know about anyway, although I think shooting percentage is totally ignored by most people in most conversations, but that's <laughs> whatever. Um but what? But what is you know? But then I see the high definition, you know, or not high definition. Um, high difficulty scoring chances, you know, scoring chances, goals, uh, expected goals for, expected goals against, all these things. Mm. So is Corsi still the gold
2: standard as far as predicting future success? Uh it's you know that we have expected goals, and then we have total. Uh, metrics like war and and gar i don't know if you've seen those but it's I wins have, above replacement yeah. and goals above, above replacement and yeah i mean the issue here is the really big steps have been taken already so we made really big gains with stuff like pdo and corsi and and seeing how um how we could use them and correct for them so now the next few steps we take um the funny thing is is The gains we will make from them aren't as big, but they're a lot harder to take just because now we're getting into advanced modeling. Now we're combining a lot of measures together to spit out sort of one number when it comes to war and and gar and then expected goals as mentioned and shock quality. We have to measure so many variables and put them together so they make sense and (laughs) they're both accurate and precise. It's, It's a really hard thing to do accurately so now right now we're kind of in an experimental phase uh with people building their own models seeing how useful and predictive they are and seeing if they they give us any sort of gain over what we're using already so we'll see all right so you mentioned war and gar and now we're gonna
1: now we're gonna get into it um so yeah. here's my question about Warren gar, and gar and i and i can't i don't know how to look it up so i can't tell if i'm correct in in my hypothetical but a player like dustin brown spends the last three years apparently struggling apparently you know uh reduced in inability at some point you know uh, it causes a bunch of articles snarky articles to be written about how the kings are loaded down with terrible contracts um one of the theories that floated around during that time was that it was a simply a question of coaching right that he mm-hmm. had been bumped down to the third line the coach didn't get along with him and, you know, part of it was that he, you know, it just the sort of psychic weight of that, you know, of that um, conflict weighed him down. Part of it was he wasn't getting, you know, he was playing with lesser talent, et cetera, et cetera. Are those the sorts of things that show up in these equations? Or, or because if, if a player like Dustin Brown is, is quote unquote penalized. When it comes to assessing, you know, wins over replacement or goals over replacement, and then the team fires the coach and all of a sudden, whoop, different system, and Kobitar's on pace for his highest offensive output, Brown's on pace for his off highest offensive output, Doughty's on pace, maybe not for highest, but very close to highest. You know, all of a sudden you have this team that that everybody quote unquote knew couldn't score goals for five years. And all of a sudden they're scoring goals. Does does any of that go into these equations or is it again just a bunch of people who write these articles and then when i contact them privately and ask them how many games they've actually watched they sort of snidely reply well not many
2: yeah well i mean a, a big element in in these stats is they're combining a lot of um you know stats that are out there so if, mm. if dustin brown's um offense falls for three straight seasons it's i mean that's what shows up in the number right. um i think what you're more talking about and this is something i'm going to try to introduce a bit more into analysis <laughs> yeah, all right <laughs> um it's more math though i'm i'm afraid it's called bayesian analysis or bayesian inference um i don't know if we want to get into it too much here but it's a way of looking at what's happening and assigning probabilities to what happened and what will happen. So it's it's a, sort of a long drawn out thing. I may be you know, working with um, an Oilers writer here in the next little while and publishing stuff on how to use this properly. So instead of going from Dustin Brown is is good and now he's terrible, it's we start assigning to probabilities to how good maybe Dustin Brown is. So over the last three years, maybe our probabilities we assigned to him just based on the way he, he was trending, uh, we put a little bit more weight on, you know, Dustin Brown might be bad now, but with him training, trending up, we can start to rearrange the probabilities. That said, we are only talking about 25 games, so it will be interesting to see how Brown and company and the rest of them do for the rest of the season too.
1: Sure, but if you told me three years ago or or last year, for example, you know, there were there were no end of of articles about, you know, well, the Kings have Marion Gaverick, and they've got Dustin Brown, and they've got Jonathan Quick, and they've got, you know, Jeff Carter. Andrew Dowdy needs a new contract. And the Kings were one of those teams, and I get it, they won the cup twice, and so, you know, all the all the stat heads out in, you know, New York and, and Washington and Edmonton, you know, get pissed and <laughs> You know, I suppose now Now I'm just being a totally defensive kicker. But I suppose it's a way to feel good about your team to kick the the team that put together, right, a three-year stretch like the Kings did. It's a good yeah. way to kick them when they're down. But my, my my point is I've always, you know, even Greg Wyshynski mentioned Quick's contract uh, in the last couple of weeks as being, um, you know, a bit of an albatross. And I just look at it and I say, look, if the Kings make the playoffs again this year and if Dustin Brown, uh, as far as I'm concerned, if Dustin Brown disappears for the rest of the season, his first 25 games have been so much fun to watch. He's worth the salary. But the point is, if he reverts back to being a first-line player and putting up first-line minutes, and suddenly, you know, your top line is Kopitar, Brown, and a rookie making rookie scale, and your second line, you know, when Carter comes back, is Carter, right, is one of the most underpaid uh, second-line centers in the league with with Toffoli and Pearson on, on high-value deals. And if Gabrick is a productive player, player from the third line and quick as Jonathan quick all none of those contracts are bad anymore right and everybody everybody for the past three years has just been right then all of a sudden and again this is just a giant hidden way for me to pat myself on the back then all of a sudden my argument that these sorts of weird off-ice you know unforeseen events actually do impact the game and and that and 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 that you know slack can be given for the franchise
2: yeah but keep in mind how many what-ifs you had in that sure. very, very no, long that is series true. of things. No, and again, that's I, true. <laughs> yeah, I would never wait. One of the issues here is I wouldn't, I wouldn't wait uh, 25 games over, say, a three-year uh, season mm-hmm. span just because it's dangerous to – we have sort of built into our minds something called the recency bias, yeah. and I think I've mentioned I'm a, I have a degree in psychology before, so I I bring this kind of stuff up all the time. But uh, humans kind of like to really overweight things that have happened recently mm-hmm. and sort of erase uh, things that have happened in the past because it seems more relevant, obviously. Anything that's happening now or or just happened now seems to be – a lot more important in, in giving weight to things and projecting them forward. But it's sometimes you have to give greater weight to the larger sample size. So that said, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what the Kings do for the, through the rest of the season. And if they keep this up, I mean, especially Dustin Brown, That if that resurrection continues moving forward, it will be a fascinating story to dig into and say what exactly happened here because he looked finished yeah. for a couple of seasons.
1: I mean, I, look, I hate to confess it publicly, but I, I I, agree with you. I was convinced that he was done, and I, I've never been more happy to be so wrong because he looks absolutely phenomenal this season. I know you said you've got something to do at the top of the hour. Um, can I keep you a little bit longer, or do you have to go? Yeah, a couple minutes. Okay, perfect. So I want to talk about the, the recency bias when it comes to the Edmonton Oilers because that's <laughs> such, a, such a perfect segue. One of the arguments, and I'll try and make it short to, to let you get it. Get going. One of the arguments I've had with people over the last year or so is everybody applauds. You know, The Oilers make a move and everybody applauds. And I say to myself, they have been making the wrong decisions for 10, <laughs> ten years in a row. What, yeah. on, what on earth makes us think that the decision they made yesterday, no matter how good it looks, what, what on earth makes us think that it somehow will work out for the best? I understand they got Connor McDavid, but that was by no... Yeah, that no, was a lottery ball. Yeah, there's nothing that they did. They they were the lucky recipient. After 10 years they were, you know, drafting first overall for whatever. 5 out of 10 years or something. You were bound to land on a generational talent. Mm-hmm. Um are are the Edmonton Oilers the victims of bad luck this year or are they just the exact franchise that I have thought they've been for 10 years?
2: Uh it's it's a little bit of both. Like um I know you say a lot of people seem to be applauding their moves, but I, I certainly have not been one of them over the last little while. I've I laughed out loud when they traded Hall for Larson straight up. <laughs> I didn't like them, you know, trading Everly for no apparent reason, uh-huh. just because he had a down year. Um, he, that said, uh, there's two things going on. They started the year out cold. Um, they were out shooting and out chancing everyone, but Talbot came back and you know was 20 points below his career average save percentage. Nobody could score for some reason. Um, so I think they, they have been unlucky through the early going. That said, we've taken a look at the results recently and everything's going downhill. Um, their possession is moving downhill, like just a steady slope downwards into not good territory. So I was going to say, you know, I, I kind of bet on them re- rebounding just based on the fact that you know, they did, had the lowest, one of the lowest PDOs in, in the league. I thought, you know, Cam Talbot's got a rebound here someone's going to start scoring a little bit but um if their possession and expected goals continues to slide the way it is uh, a rebound is less likely and more funny
1: oh it's the funniest thing <laughs> it's the funniest thing ever and I I don't know if people understand I mean I have a real strong hate on for the Oilers franchise and part of it is because it just feels to me like they have they have at this point it feels like they've wasted a generation of talent right like all the thing yeah. of all those good players that wound up in edmonton and what their careers might look like and what the league might look like had they wound up on teams with you know competent development staffs and coaching staffs and and front offices yeah. etc um and now to have them do it to connor mcdavid is just i mean it's well, i mean I I'm, I'm only laughing all, right? because what's that
2: They've already done it to Hall and Ryan Nugent Hawkins will probably be out the door in, a, in twelve months. I mean, just... I
1: re- I remember sitting in uh, at Yard House across the street from Staples five years ago and, and an Oilers fan in an Eberly jersey talking about how he was the greatest player in the league and now super like,
2: clutch. Yeah, yeah was,
1: who's Jordan <laughs> Eberly? It's amazing. All right, um, we'll move right along to Vegas because that's the big mystery.
2: Um, yeah, that's amazing.
1: So I'm kicking myself because for years I have been making the argument, uh, not in so many words, but I've been making the argument that the way to build a good team is to build the Vegas Golden Knights. Then they build the Vegas Golden Knights. I take one look at it and go, eh, nothing special. Don't care. They're yeah. going to be awful. So so my argument has always been that the most important elements of a team are the second pair defensemen and the third line. And my argument was always every team's got a top line and every team's got a got a number one d and and playoff battles are won and lost you know on depth on on those on those pairs and and line combos that you don't maybe talk about every night and am I crazy in thinking that the golden Knights are just a team made up of second liners and second pair defensemen
2: you know i I looked at that roster when they <laughs> put it together and I thought oh that's that's not too good. Um, <laughs> I mean, was, everybody uh, did, right? But, yeah. but
1: it seems so obvious now that they're doing well.
2: Yeah, and it's, you know what, whatever luck the Edmonton Oilers didn't have to start the year, I think it all went to the Vegas Golden Knights, which mm-hmm. is funny. I, I I don't think they're going to continue sort of on this. Path that they've had, but they're not. They're actually not objectively terrible. I mean, they they're not <laughs> bottom of the league in terms of the way they control play. They're not. They're certainly not last or second last. We we can't really expect a, a terrible um, reckoning to come down the road like we've seen occasionally with you know the Colorado Avalanche and other teams right. that <laughs> kind of got through a season and then collapsed utterly. It's uh, it's really interesting to see kind of this island of misfit toys come together and not be awful.
1: Well, I, 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 mean, I'm torn because I keep, I keep wanting to go with this interpretation, and I suppose it's not. Uh, I suppose it's, um, I don't know what kind of bias it is when you when you want something to be right to to justify your own bizarre theory. <laughs> but, <laughs> confirmation bias. There you go. Confirmation bias. Um, but anyway, uh, it'll be fascinating to watch them, and uh, and fascinating to watch your Calgary Flames, who I also mm. have a strong hate on, but only because yeah, you, you guys seem to make it. <laughs> so you can get under the king's skin in a way that no other team does but yeah, uh, Kent I want to thank you very much for joining me. I always enjoy talking to you. Yeah,
2: my pleasure anytime.
1: And uh, again, and and newly acquired by the uh, the Athletic. So if you ever get a chance follow him on Twitter or read him at the Athletic. Kent Wilson, thanks very much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.